It's been called the cockroach of bacteria, a bad germ that can lurk in lots of places. So said Dr. Julie Gerberding of the CDC. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Jernigan. Dr. Jernigan is the Chief of Interventions and Evaluation Section in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. He is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine. Today we are discussing the epidemiology of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus and the problem of multidrug-resistant organisms. Welcome, Dr. Jernigan. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. I looked up the definition of epidemiology, and I may not have all the fine points, but it included finding means to control and prevent disease that relates to the environment and ways of life, disease outcomes, and populations at risk, the study of incidence, distribution, and control of disease. I think that covers the MRSA problem pretty well. When did MRSA first appear? Methicillin-resistant staph, or MRSA, really first appeared in the 1960s. And it might even be more helpful to go back further and talk about Staphylococcus aureus as a germ that frequently causes human disease. Staph aureus has been a well-described human pathogen since the beginning of human history. And that really hasn't changed. What has changed... Was that boils? When they talked about boils and pestilence, was that... Uh... Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Right. In Old Testament times, Job's problem was probably Staph aureus infections uh, <laughs> with great. boils, et cetera. But... <laughs> yeah. um, the thing that has changed is its susceptibility to antimicrobial agents. And soon after penicillin came into widespread use in the middle of the part of the last century, shortly thereafter, we saw the emergence of penicillin resistance among Staphylococcus aureus. And in fact, today, uh, most all isolates of Staphylococcus aureus that we encounter are in fact resistant to penicillin. Partly in response to that, the pharmaceutical industry developed penicillinase-resistant classes of antibiotics, of which methicillin is the prototype. And when that and similar agents began to come into widespread use, not surprisingly, shortly after that, somewhere in about the early 1960s, we saw the emergence of methicillin-resistant staph, or MRSA. And it should be noted that MRSA is resistant not only to that particular drug, but resistance to the whole class of beta-lactam antibiotics. And it also tends to go in company with resistance to other classes of antibiotics. So Another way to think about the M and MRSA is multi-drug resistance, Staph aureus. But anyway, first emerged in the 1960s and was almost exclusively for the next several decades in a problem in healthcare settings. And it has emerged over time in hospitals and healthcare settings around the world to become a very common cause of nosocomial or healthcare-associated infections. How many infections annually are we talking about, so the incidence and burden to society today? Well, the CDC recently published a study that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association that looked at just that, and it looked at it from a population perspective. So it looked at all the staph aureus infections that were occurring in the U.S. population. And I should say from the outset that this study looked specifically at the most severe MRSA infections, not all of them, but the ones that were serious and life-threatening. And we estimate from that study about 94,000 life-threatening MRSA infections occur every year in the United States. And of those, there are about 19,000 deaths that are associated with those infections. It's a big number. It is a big number and suggests that this is an important public health problem. Now, when they say serious, did that mean serious enough to be hospitalized, or how is that defined? 
Yeah, it was defined by finding the germ in a what we call a sterile body site, which is a site where we normally wouldn't find bacteria. So it's invaded really the most inner recesses of the body. And undoubtedly, these patients would require hospitalization. So they are very, very serious infections. Now, I think everybody's aware of nasal carriage. Everybody's aware of the importance of hand washing with soap and water or now the alcohol-based antimicrobials. What are the other factors that play an important role in transmission? What do we need to watch out for? Part of that answer depends on what type of MRSA you're talking about. Another thing about the study is it determined which proportion of those infections were associated with healthcare and which of those were associated with the community. In other words, how many of those were occurring in patients who had no exposure to healthcare, but were just acquiring in the community. Most of our audience are primary care physicians. So I think the community acquired would be very important to the audience. When they get to the hospital-acquired infections, they probably call in their infectious disease specialists. So in terms of what my patients are going to be worried about and what schools and businesses need to know about transmission, could you give us some pointers there? Sure. Well, MRSA is a disease of transmission. Some people think that MRSA arises commonly from a sensitive staph that gets exposed to antibiotics and then somehow turns into a resistant strain. In fact, that occurs very, very rarely. And in fact, only a few times in history do we think that's occurred. It's more of an issue of transmission. Most MRSA infections that we see are caused by a very limited number of strains, which suggests that when you see a patient with MRSA infection, they most likely acquired it from somebody else. So transmission is the key. So what factors contribute to transmission? Well, it is spread by person-to-person contact, either by direct skin contact or indirect through exposure to contaminated items. We talk about the primary risk factors at times being the five C's. That stands for conditions where there's crowding, where there's frequent skin-to-skin contact, particularly in areas where there's compromised skin, such as cuts or abrasions, and when there's sharing of contaminated items and surfaces and a general lack of cleanliness. I'd like to just stop for a moment and then come back to this to welcome all those who are just joining us and let them know they're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Jernigan of the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia. We're discussing the epidemiology of MRSA, or methicillin-resistant staph aureus. You're talking to us about the five C's of transmission. Please go ahead and finish the conversation if you'd like. Right. So these are settings in which if a person with an MRSA infection is is introduced into that setting, the transmission can occur quite efficiently. And that's why we've seen outbreaks commonly described in places like in athletic teams and locker rooms where many of these conditions exist, in prisons, daycare centers, and other epidemiologic settings where there's very, very close contact and where these five C's can play a role, although it can affect anybody in the community. We've also seen that in certain families and household units, there can be a lot of back-and-forth transmission. But when you think about it, the nice part about this epidemiology is that the transmission cycle can be interrupted with really pretty simple hygiene measures. We think that practicing good hygiene will get us most of the way there in terms of preventing these infections. And so I think it's important for physicians when they are evaluating a patient who might have any staphylococcal skin infection, but including MRSA, to go over with them some of these simple hygiene messages. You mentioned uh, wrestling mats, locker rooms. Are there any problems, concerns about computer keyboards, desks, and other inanimate objects? Well, most of the epidemiologic studies that have been done don't implicate the contaminated environment as contributing a very major role to transmission. It might contribute some, 
And it certainly is important to include that in your prevention measures, keeping a clean environment. But in general, I think focusing more on the direct person-to-person or indirect person-to-person transmission is most important. You've probably heard a lot of the news lately about schools that have been closed down when they identify a student who might have an MRSA. Yeah, I sure have. I'm a pediatrician, so I hear a lot about that. Yeah, I mean, of course, any decision to close a school for any communicable disease has to be made by school officials in consultation with local and or their state public health officials, and there may be extenuating circumstances that would necessitate that. However, we think that in most cases, the epidemiology of this illness suggests that it's probably not necessary to close down schools or other institutions because of an MRSA infection in a student or worker. When do you do nasal cultures? There are several settings in which that might be considered. A public health department in doing an outbreak investigation might consider doing some nasal cultures to see if they can identify people who are reservoirs of colonization. But in general, that would very rarely need to be done. On the clinical side of things, it's also very unclear as to when to do this. It probably shouldn't even be considered unless you're dealing with a case in which there are recurrent staphylococcal infections that might be occurring within a single household unit or within a very tightly linked epidemiologic setting. And probably, again, that should be done in conjunction with your local health officials. I mean, I can't tell you how many parents come in or call about a child with they're almost invisible rashes, and the thing they're most worried about is MRSA. And they try and talk them out of it, but if they push you for a nasal culture, what would you respond? Well, a couple of things, and I want to get back to the nasal colonization part, but I think one thing that I would remind parents and people who are worried about MRSA infection is that to remember this study that I quoted and these numbers that I quoted were the very most serious life-threatening infections. And the vast majority of those were infections that were acquired in healthcare. The community-associated infections that became life-threatening were, number one, when you look at it in the context of how many MRSA skin and soft tissue infections occur in this country, it's a very, very rare event. We think this study didn't look at all MRSA skin infections, but from other data sources, we suspect there are millions and millions of MRSA skin and soft tissue infections that occur in this country every year. And when you look at the very few that occurred as part of this study, it suggests that MRSA skin infections very rarely become life-threatening. And even when they do, this study suggested that the mortality rate associated with those is much, much lower than the mortality rate associated with health care. Are you saying the community-acquired skin infections that when you said millions and millions, does that mean some of them are clearing spontaneously or just with topical local therapy? I think the vast, vast majority of these infections will not progress to cause any severe disease. Either they will respond spontaneously or they will respond to very standard therapies. Many of these cases don't even require antibiotics. Simple incision and drainage is all they need. There may be others that do require antibiotics, but the vast majority of these can be treated with any number of oral antibiotics that seem to be quite effective. So for any given patient who presents with an MRSA skin and soft tissue infection, the chances that that patient will go on to develop a life-threatening disease are very small and even smaller that they would actually die from that infection. We're near the end of the time, and something I read, and just maybe you could elucidate on, I read that influenza infection increases your risk for getting an MRSA infection. Is that true, and what's the mechanism? Well, we've long known that having influenza puts one at risk for bacterial pneumonia. The viral infection itself probably breaks down some of the respiratory 
epithelium and for reasons that we don't completely understand, make one more susceptible to a post-viral bacterial pneumonia. And it turns out that Staph aureus is not uncommonly seen in this setting. Now that we have the Staph aureus infections that are circulating in the community, a significant proportion are now caused by methicillin-resistant strains, we are seeing methicillin-resistant staph emerge as a cause of post-influenza staphylococcal pneumonia. I'd like to thank Dr. John Jernigan, who has been so generous with his time to discuss the epidemiology of MRSA. I leave you with a somber thought. Isn't it bizarre we can topple a regime in a few days but can't defeat a simple bacteria in 30 years? I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and take advantage of our new on-demand and podcast features, which allow you to access our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.